Welcome to Five Things About. I'm Chris Hatzis. Five Things About is for you and your inner curious cat. The part of you that loves to know what others know about inventions, ideas, people and places. You've heard the proverb, curiosity killed the cat. The rest of the proverb is, but satisfaction brought it back. So go on, knock yourself out and bring yourself back. Today, we explore five things about the law of the sea. Our host today is Sam Johnston, alumni support officer at the Melbourne Law School. He's interviewing his namesake, Sam Johnston, an expert in international environmental law at the University of Melbourne. When we land lovers think about the law of the sea, images of swashbuckling pirate adventures, shipments of tea and spices and shady goings-on in international waters might spring to mind. The reality of this field is no less interesting, dealing with disputed territories, protection of ocean life, the challenges of climate change, and much more. I'm Sam Johnston, and there's an interesting story about how we came to make this podcast. I received a peculiar email from a student a while ago, asking me to provide research for them for a project. This was well outside of my position description. My amused colleagues mentioned that there was another Sam Johnston in the faculty, one highly qualified to offer research assistance. Somewhat relieved, I passed the email on to its rightful owner, and a tenuous friendship was born with my namesake. I learnt that Sam was teaching an intensive subject on the law of the sea as part of the Melbourne Law School Master's Program. I wanted to know more about this important and little understood legal field. Thank you for joining me, Sam. Thank you. The oceans cover a huge portion of the earth, and it must be very complex to develop a set of laws that govern them. Is it the Wild West out there? In some ways, yes. It's one of the last frontiers for human endeavour and also a frontier for the law. It's mainly managed through international law and as a result, it's a very distinctive regime which spares the same kind of principles and similarities to the other frontiers like Antarctica or outer space. And I imagine we're constantly discovering new things about the oceans. Um, what, what kind of things are we discovering and what does that mean for the law of the sea? You're right. It's very little known. We know more about the moon than we know about the deep sea. James Cameron went to the bottom of the ocean and that's the first time a man went to the bottom of the ocean. We're discovering new organisms and animals every day that live down in the deep. And in fact, new whole ways of thinking about biology are completely being revolutionised by research out in these areas. So, for instance, most of the world's biomass is actually invisible microbes and viruses in the water column of the ocean. And this we only knew 10 years ago, only recently discovered it, let alone have only just begun to understand what those microbes are and how they perform and what kind of valuable contribution they make to our world, but also to our research. And the law is the same. It's, it's catching up. So it is a, an area which is very underdeveloped and very new. And so lots goes on ahead of the law, which is unregulated and, and the law is so rapidly developing. And, and the commercial interests in these areas are rapidly developing now too. And so um, that's further driving the law and its development. And how have the laws of the sea been defined historically and currently? And who governs them? The law of the sea has always been international law. So it's always been beyond one particular state. It's the law which all the world's countries come together and govern and agree upon. And that's historically been the case since Roman times and is still the case today. The principle 
agreement for its government is a UN agreement called the United Nations Convention on Law of the Sea. But there are thousands of other protocols and agreements and treaties which make up a rich, complex fabric web of government and law. So at what point do the nation's jurisdictions stop and the law of the sea come into play? The boundary has been evolving over years, but it used to be the territorial sea was part of the country's sovereignty and the distance of the territorial sea was the limit of the cannon shot from from the forts. And that used to be traditionally two nautical miles, but that's been growing ever since. And nowadays it's 200 nautical miles. And beyond that is the high seas where we're looking at the last frontier. And that's still a very significant part, maybe as much as 60% of the world is the high seas and governed by international law in this area that we're talking about. And what happens when nations don't abide by those international laws? There are various international courts which have been set up uh, to deal with those disagreements. And two common ones which we look at in our course and receive a lot of press is the international whaling case, which was brought by Australia against Japan in the International Court of Justice, and the dispute between the Philippines and China in the South China Seas as to who owns the South China Seas. Can you tell me more about the uh, whaling dispute? So that's a dispute between Australia and Japan. Australia alleges that Japan is whaling in contravention of the international law, in contravention of the moratorium on whaling. And Japan reply is that it's actually doing it for scientific research purposes. And so Australia took Japan to the International Court of Justice, arguing that in fact it wasn't for research, it wasn't scientific, and Japan argued the opposite, and the court agreed with Australia, and so ordered Japan to cease its whaling. What are the ramifications for them if they go against those findings? Japan is not a country which would ignore an international court's ruling, and so as most countries would follow any ruling of the International Court of Justice. But the ramifications of not doing it are a few and far between direct ones. It's not like you're in a domestic situation where if you don't abide by the court, you end up in jail. It will have effect on your international relations, though, and your standing in the international community. So if you were to ignore a, a ruling of the International Court of Justice, you'd be damaging your reputation and influencing or weakening your influence in a whole, all areas of international relations. And speaking of international relations, um, can you tell us a bit more about the South China Seas dispute? So there is a very important dispute which was brought again with one of these international courts, the Permanent Court of Arbitration by the Philippines, and they alleged that China's claim that it owned the South China Seas based on its historical rights was wrong, and they also alleged that the islands that China was building in the South China Seas were contrary to the, the laws governing the protection of the marine environment. And again, the Permanent Court of Arbitration, like the International Court of Justice, found in favour of those arguments that indeed China's claim to its historic rights was false and no longer valid, and therefore the South China Seas were owned and controlled by the coastal states around the South China Seas. And in their island building program was also contrary to the laws governing the protection of the marine environment because it was damaging coral reefs quite significantly. And how have those findings uh, mitigated some potential broader conflicts in that area or 
are they still brewing? They're still brewing. China has ignored the ruling and refused to participate in the ruling and still claims that the South China Seas are its sovereign territory or it owns the South China Seas. And so the conflicts are still there. And so we're still getting the US and Australia as well exercising one of the freedoms of the high sea, claiming that it's still high sea and not China Sea. And so they're sending their planes and their warships through and they're exercising the freedom of navigation on the high seas. But potential, of course, is that this could escalate and there could be an incident between one of these warships and the Chinese warships that are in the South China Seas. And we could end up with a full-blown confrontation, which would be disastrous because it would be between China and the US. How can the law of the sea help meet the challenges of climate change? Very important factor in climate change and because the weather is determined by the oceans. And one example is that um, we all know about cyclones and, and the damage they do, and that's uh, predicted to increase with climate change. But a lesser known fact is that most of the world's carbon or greenhouse gases is actually stored in the oceans. So the oceans store 38,000 gigatons of carbon, whereas the terrestrial systems only have 700 gigatons of carbon. So you can see just from that figure what an important role they play. Also, sea level rise is one of the biggest and most dramatic impacts of climate change and threatens to flood most of the world's cities. So there are some of the roles that the oceans play in climate change. And I understand that there's some important scientific research happening in the ocean to combat climate change and that it began with a sort of pirate science. So one of the ideas being considered given the important role that the oceans play in the carbon cycle, is perhaps we could increase the capacity of the oceans to absorb more and more carbon and and tackle climate change that way. Engineer the oceans at a global scale, or geoengineering it's called, is an idea which is increasingly being thought about and discussed in international fora dealing with climate change. And you're right, it's been pioneered by rogue scientists who are operating outside of the law by sprinkling fertiliser into the oceans and hoping that that will boost the production of algae, which will then absorb more carbon. And and this is contrary to international law, but that gives you a, a flavour of how it is the last frontier and things do happen out there which are not regulated or properly controlled. But now there are a dozen or so experiments which have done the same thing and, and the international response has put in place rules which allow geoengineering to be explored on a scientific basis, but prohibit or have placed a moratorium on it actually being deployed to actually in a meaningful scale. Another environmental issue which the law of the sea will be interacting with is the plastics in the sea. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Plastics are very persistent and they take a very, very long time to break down. And ultimately, therefore, all plastics that we've produced will eventually end up in the sea. And we're already beginning to see massive amounts of plastics in the sea all over the world. So you can go to the most remote island nowadays in the oceans and you'll find plastic washed up on the beaches. So this is only predicted to increase because the production of plastics is skyrocketing and exponentially growing. 
So this is one of the emerging issues which is really confronting the law of the sea and it's struggling to respond to the issue because it's so complex. We use plastics in every manner and fashion and it's very important for countries who are developing to have cheap plastics and stuff like that. So actually tackling the issue is really, really challenging and will be one of the biggest challenges that law of the sea face in the years to come. And how might the laws tackle some of those challenges? Do you have any ideas on that? It's, it has to focus on recycling and reusing and being very careful with waste and how we dispose of waste. But ultimately, the law will need to support drives to eliminate plastics from our society. Another big issue which we face today is overfishing. How might the law of the sea be used to tackle this challenge? There's a rich history of international law controlling fishing. Many agreements, and in fact, uh, one of the best in the world is the Southern Ocean Agreement called Convention to Conserve Antarctic Marine Living Resources, or CAMLA. It's got very detailed regulations about catch limits, about gears that you can use, about closed systems. What's been lacking, though, has been enforcement. And now we're at a threshold of a very exciting time because of satellite tracking and mobile phones, enforcement has improved enormously. And so we can track every single fishing vessel. So for the very first time, we've really been able to monitor very closely the high seas and and what the fishing fleets are doing on the high seas. And that will provide the last link in the legal chain of ensuring proper management of these fisheries. Sam, piracy continues to be a major issue worldwide. How can the law of the sea address this? Piracy's been around for hundreds of years and there are very detailed laws about it being illegal. And again, though, the real problem has been one of enforcement. So it's been very difficult to try and stop pirates operating because they're operating beyond the law and they're they're hidden. And so by definition, it's very difficult to bring them to, to justice. But... Um, again, here, the technology that we have and the ability to, to monitor what goes on in the oceans now has dramatically increased over the last decade or so. And that will mean that enforcement will be able to be dramatically increased. But piracy today is different from yesteryear in that it's largely a product of dysfunctional states. And so it's it's opportunist, it's driven by hunger and and basic needs like that in Somalia or in, in Indonesia. And so the, the law there has an important role to help sustainably develop these countries and, and, and bring order to those dysfunctional countries so that these opportunist activities don't flourish. Finally, how does the international community balance the combined interests of countries, businesses and environmental issues and how do they determine what laws are made and who enforces them? A consensus. So it's a very tricky, slow process, but there is a lot of consensus on a lot of the issues. For instance, big businesses' interests are often quite closely aligned with the consensus and so fishing's an example where actually the stronger fishing controls have been driven by big business because they recognise that their supply chain is under threat and they want to secure that for the future. And so the biggest driver of innovation in fishing regulation has actually been Unilever, which is the biggest purchaser of fish. Other areas are the same. If you want to mine the seabed floor, you need permission from the UN in order to secure the right to do that. And so again here, the business interests are very much aligned with that consensus of the states. 
Same with the plastics issue. Everyone recognises it's a challenge and people are working collectively to try and address that challenge. And so there are disputes, as we've seen in the South China Seas or differences in whaling, and they end up in the dispute settlement mechanisms that are available for resolving those sort of issues. But there's also lots of areas where there's general consensus. And increasingly, as our world becomes smaller and smaller, the interests become more interlocked and the need to manage these last frontiers more collectively and actively becomes clearer. Well, thank you so much for your time, Sam, and for sharing your vast knowledge of the law of the sea. Thank you. So that's five things about the law of the sea, or possibly six things. We're good with words, not with numbers. Thanks to Sam Johnston and Sam Johnston. This podcast was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on the 18th of May, 2017. Audio engineering by Gavin Neighbour. Production by Arch Cuthbertson and Andrea Horvath. The Five Things About podcast is a University of Melbourne training program created by Dr Andy Horvath. Still curious? Dip over to our other podcasts, Up Close and Eavesdrop on Experts, for more. I'm Chris Hatzis. Join us again next time for another Five Things About.